0: We're at the end. Well, I guess that just means there's another beginning about to happen, but today's the end. Uh, We're in part three of our series that is called Looking Into Hell. It has not been the most fun thing that we have ever done. Um, And like I promised at the very beginning, this was not three separate messages. It's kind of one big message that we broke up into three parts. It is guaranteed to not answer all of your questions. It is guaranteed to not do that. But if you do have some more specific questions, if that, there is something going on in your mind that in the background that we brought something up and you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I wonder about this, or somebody asked me about that, or I've always heard this, if there's something else that you have that's stirring in you, because I've heard some of this, but I didn't hear any of the questions. I just heard that people have them. So if you have questions, and if you're at church online right now, you can use the chat. Type them in right now. That doesn't mean I'm going to answer them today, although maybe. Hey, that would be great, wouldn't it? But if you write them in there, then I'll know. If you're with us on Main Street, you can send them in, again, through our, our website, intoone.ca, through the bottom right button, next steps. There will be a contact us button. You can send them in through that, or you can send an email to the church, info at intoone.ca. We will not use your name so you can be anonymous because I realize here's the other thing. This is what I know about Christians. This is what I've learned. None of us want to admit there's something that we're unsure about. I know it's true. It's not a great place, but that's where we are. And so I want to to make sure that you're protected in that way. We won't say, and Fred, Fred... can you believe Fred asked this question? Ridiculous. No, it's not like that at all. If you have a question, you can write it in this week, and, and, and if we get enough of them, I will look to try and have answers ready for next Sunday for you. So what happens next Sunday then becomes dependent on you. All right? There we go. We, we, we got through where we were. We, we started with um, darkness, debauchery, and decadence, which is a great way to start, that's how we start. And then uh, last, last episode, we uh, talked about more of the objections. W- but what about this? So we called that one, yeah, but what about, as we tried to look at things that are going on in the background. Today, we got uh, some more of those uh, kind of objections, those concerns that people have, um, but also trying to paint a bit of a picture of, of what and why. So that's where we are going today. So We all must face it, whether we kind of want to or not, head on, if we're honest. And in that vein, there is another question that I wanted um, to bring up, and this one I think kind of pokes at us about hell, um, though it seems to also be one that's rarely explored. Why is hell the way it is? Why the anguish? Why the pain? Why the suffering and isolation? How come? So what about that idea that people seem to get that that I'm going to simply be partying with all of my non-boring, cool friends, and we're going to be able to do all the cool things that we've always wanted to be able to do? That's a picture of hell. And why why isn't hell just a, a super big bad boy, bad girl kind of party that never ends? It's all good times. And the answer to this question is eternally important to each one of us. Why is hell the way it is? Because if God is the life-giving source of everything in the universe, of every good that we experience in life, all joy, all pleasure, laughter, and art, and music, and food, and sex, and everything that you would say is good. And if these things are given to us because of the common grace of God, which we learn about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What are we left with if His presence and and this kind of grace is removed? In in one sense, hell can be understood as the outworking of our choice to experience total autonomy from God. We are allowed to be our own God. We are allowed to sustain and provide for ourselves ourselves. The problem is that this is impossible, and we are thus left with nothing, because everything that is good came from His hand. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. There's a a story that Jesus told, it's a parable, uh, and I've referenced it. Uh, in passing a couple of times throughout this series, and I want to uh, reference it a bunch today, and so I want to lay it out for you, okay? So now all the good scholars that would chime in on this, they they would want to remind us, they want to remind you that this is a parable, okay? It's a teaching story, and it's not, again, security camera footage, all right? It tells a story, but we should not push for our complete understanding of hell and all of its ins and outs Through this story, okay? But it's still a story that Jesus told, and so that gives it some real important value. I'm going to share this story uh, with you, and I'm going to share it originally from the message paraphrase. I want you to just listen so the words aren't going to come up for you. and We're going to come back to it as we move forward, okay? So Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. There was once a rich man, expensively dressed in the latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumption. A poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, has been dumped on his doorstep. And he lived uh, for... All he lived for was to get meal scraps from the rich man's table. His best friends were the dogs that, who came along and licked his sores. Then he died, this poor man, and was taken up by the angels to the lap of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried... And in hell and in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus in his lap, and he called out, Father Abraham, mercy! Have mercy! Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, you got the good things, and Lazarus, the bad things. Here he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides, in all these matters, there is a huge chasm sat between us so that no one can go from us to you even if he wanted to, nor can anyone cross over from you to us. The rich man said, then let me ask you, Father, send him to the house of my father where I have five brothers so He can tell them the score and warn them so they won't end up in this place of torment. Abraham answered, They have Moses and the prophets to tell them the score. Let them listen to them. I know, Father Abraham, he said, but, but they're not listening. If someone came back from, from, to them from the dead, they would change their ways. Abraham replied, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. In Jesus' story from Luke chapter 16, the man in hell casts, uh, casts out his hope. He calls out in verse 24. Here it is in the New Living Translation. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. You know, send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But here's the haunting part. There is no water. In in other words, hell is the place where the common grace of God, the blessings and the comforts that He provides for all of us, no longer exist. All the stuff that we enjoy, that we think that we possess because we went out and we worked so hard for it, all those good things are no longer there. God's grace is absent. It it can no longer pass here to you. He says in verse 26, "There's there's a chasm and it is fixed. In hell, people can't create the feelings or provide the resources that they thought that they could. Hell exposes the lie that we have all told ourselves. We've been telling it as a a species since the garden, that lie that we don't need God. Those who draw away from the source of all that is good are left with only not good things, things that are bad. One of my favorite authors, again, C.S. Lewis, he says, there's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy or power or peace or eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not sort of a prize which God just hands out to anyone. They are, they are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? The essence of our existence is based on the principles of relationship. We must be in good relationship, close relationship, and broken relationships cut us off from what we want and also from what we need. Before it hits us, it hits God Himself. There's a tragedy for God. Another thing that skeptics dislike about the doctrine of hell is that people seem to get the impression that God is happy about punishing people in hell, that that He's excited about it, that He says, finally, oh, I can give them all that they have been needing for so long. And whammo, here comes the spanking that you've been begging for all night, embarrassing me in front of all my guests. Indeed. But the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 of that man in hell, gives us an altogether different picture. The story is a tragedy. There's no happiness in it. And we must not forget that it's a tragedy for God above all. Jesus tells us in verse 25, He says, "But, But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Here is a guy who has been consigned to hell forever, whose life was filled with good things, but not ultimate things, not eternal things. And because of those choices that he made over the course of his life, what does God say to him when he is in hell? Does he yell at him and call him a sinner? Does he point out that you're an evildoer? No. He calls him son or child. The Greek word is technon. It's a beautiful word that parents would call their children. Speaking of relationship, every one of us, every one of us, even all those who end up eternally separated from God is loved. And this final state is a pain and it's an agony to his heart as a parent, separated from everything that God is, separated from his character. That's why in the famous judgment passage of the sheep and the goats, you know Matthew chapter 25 verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, that's where it is. Jesus tells us that hell itself was prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you catch what he's saying there? God did not create hell for people. It was created for Satan and his followers. But when people choose to follow the devil in in his kind of rebellion... They end up where the rebellion ends up. Traditional religious art, modern pictures of hell, they often present uh, uh, hell as Satan's headquarters, right? A place where demons run around and they're torturing human souls with pitchforks. They're keeping to a schedule that's sort of working out. But nothing could be further from the truth. Hell is not where Satan hangs out. It's not his headquarters. It's not his office. It's not where he charges his phone and hangs out with the famous bad dudes. Hell is a place where Satan is punished. It is a culmination of his defeat by God, and God is sovereign over it, not Satan. The picture of Satan ruling hell like it's his kingdom is found in the epic poem Paradise Lost by John Milton. From that poem, we get the the, the fabulous, the the famous quotation that comes from the character, the lips of Satan, the, the, the erroneous thought that drives his rebellion. He says, Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. It is a place where final justice, originally designed for Satan, not people, is handed out. Thy will be done. One more hell. Objection here. Skeptics say that hell is forced on unwilling people who are sent there against their will. But is this the image that the Bible presents? No. Philosopher J.P. Moreland contends that, that hell is a place for people who, given what is needed to get into heaven, to belong to heaven, which is submission to Jesus... They do not want to go to heaven. Thus, hell is the natural consequence of the choices people make. It's a monument to human freedom. And there's no small irony in the growing rise of political chance for freedom that we continually hear. The belief that freedom should allow me to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, whenever I want to do it. And no one, no one can tell me different. So many now and in the past have run down that road yelling, Freedom! And then in blindness, they do not see that it is destroying them and their relationships. And yet they believe that just a little bit farther down that freedom road, just a little bit farther, if I could just get there, then heaven will appear. So are people given a test one day that says, Heaven or hell, choose one, your choice. No, it's actually far more gracious than that. The Apostle Peter, he's writing to a church, a people that he just loves, and he observes 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He says, they, they will say, people who, who don't like this, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've felt that. So how does Peter respond to these, these questions? verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Every day that we wake up and our feet hit the floor, we see the sunrise, is another day to receive the salvation God offered as a gift. Or, It's another day to choose to reject it. Every day awards us an opportunity. We each choose our eternal destiny every day, every moment of our lives, even in the small stuff. So what are you choosing? Where are your regular, the mundane, the everyday, kind of all-the-time decisions leading you? Where are you going with them? Miroslav Wolf. he says it kind of like this, God will judge, not because God gives people what they deserve, which would be justice and punishment, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves, the grace of God. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. Should not a loving God be patient and keep luring the perpetrator into goodness? But how patient should He be? The day of reckoning must come. Not because God is too eager to pull the trigger, but because every day of patience in a world of violence means more violence. And every postponement of vindication means letting insult accompany injury. So one day, God must come in judgment and mete out judgment, and salvation based on the thousand choices we make every day because people are not defined by one decision that they make in their lifetime, something that is separate and distinct from everything else that leads them to a place called hell. They are formed by the thousands of choices that they make every day. We choose to value the things God values or we choose not to. And those choices have a trajectory. They echo out into eternity. Every decision that we make is either moving us forward toward God or away from Him every day and in every way. That's one of the reasons at Into One why we use the image. We say it all the time that we are on a road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ. We have a destination. But the bigger story is that everyone is on a road trip. All right? The road trip is not in question, only the destination. Where are your next steps leading you? You are taking next steps, whether they're heading towards Jesus or not. Where do your next steps lead you? Each of those directions is an answer to a larger question. And that question is whose will is sovereign in your life? Is it God's will or your will? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. It's about hell, and, and he concludes it this way. He says, there are only two kinds of people, those who say thy will be done to God or those to whom God in the end says thy will be done. All those who are in hell choose it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. I believe that the damned are successful rebels until the end. They enjoy the horrible freedom which they have demanded. So I ask you, what kind of old man or what kind of old woman do you want to be? In each one of us, Something is growing that will result in hell if it is not curbed, if it is not dealt with, if it is not defeated. It will turn us into the kind of person defined by selfishness and by rebellion in this life and in this life it echoes out into the next. And what's a fit place for such a person? A place where you're separated, isolated from the one person in the universe whom you've rejected and who could save you. You've decided that you you don't want Him. So that rejection has fully and completely come to define you. A new affection. As I told you way back, way back at the beginning of episode 1, I was introduced early on to God as a way out of hell, an escape from punishment. But it didn't result in deep-rooted discipleship born out of a love for God and His grace because a fear-based presentation of salvation does not change the fundamental desires of a person's heart. Only love can do that. (coughs) Maybe if you listen through this series and you're thinking, I don't really like hell." I'm still thinking about the logic of hell and and, and I hope you see why it's an important doctrine within Christianity and how the existence of it is tied to justice, whether you like that part or not. Perhaps this discussion has opened you up to the Christian faith. Or maybe you've become even more closed off to God. Talking about hell can do that. That's because you need something else. It's not enough to run from something. Salvation is all about running toward something. Indeed, not something, but someone. It is not enough to build your life on hating or or, or being afraid of an idea or a place or a consequence. Call it hell. And, And then somehow loving its opposite, heaven. Fear doesn't create true obedience. Only outward compliance and only for a season. It's your will. Fear that was motivated, the the, the rich man in Jesus' parable um, who wanted to save his family. Uh, Luke 16, verse 27, Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. 28, for I have five brothers and I want to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. And his logic kind of seems sound, and we get to verse 30. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. This has been the strategy for many who have claimed to represent Jesus over the centuries. Just give them the flames. Turn or burn. Fire and brimstone. Give them Hell they'll convert. You'll get them. But what's Abraham's response? No, they won't. Verse 29, but Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. And then verse 31, but Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Why? Why? Because you just can't tell people what they should run from. You have to explain what they are running to. And at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus makes it clear what Moses and the prophets were really all about himself. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me. The end of the law is not about the following of the rules. It's about God becoming human. It's a story we're going to tell soon. Dying for sin. Rising again to redeem sinners from death and from punishment, including the punishment of hell itself. Jesus is our Savior, sanctifier, healer, coming King, but He is our Savior. Jesus saves us by dislodging our addiction to the things that we love that land us in hell, but He doesn't use fear to do this. It's His love for us. His love for us leads us to something or rather to someone more than those things. It's a positive affection that changes us, not a negative one, So why why do we use fear? Why are we all so compelled by it? It's that power and control that we long for. But Jesus lives love, and He calls us to live the same. The only walk, the only way to truly walk away from sin and the things of this world which end us in hell is by finding something that you love more than those things. A new love that trumps the old and is the only way with enough power to unhinge you from the sin that so easily entangles. It's the only solution. And this is the climactic part of the, of, in the Jesus story. Fear will not save them. They need a new heart, a new affection. Let them be stirred to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thomas Chalmers, he wrote this, We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. So eyes up, my friends. Jesus first and everything else after. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. In the end, what are we to do? The Bible claims hell is real whatever its nature, whatever its specifics, however it actually works, our reason says that the idea of hell makes sense, even while it makes us feel uncomfortable. But as we have seen, being uncomfortable with an idea is not the same as having a rational reason to doubt it. The better thing is to let the evidence and the angst Lead us somewhere that retains both. Nowhere is this truer than wrestling with the idea of hell. George MacDonald, he warned, he said that where, where there are, when there are wild beasts about, it is better to feel afraid than to feel secure. Pay attention to what's there, the angst. Hell is real. Hell is scary. Hell sounds unpleasant, but in that there is a seriousness that can give way to security if we trust in the one who took on hell himself for us. God worked through his son, driven by a love and a desire for none to perish, to save us from hell to something glorious and wonderful. Last time, C.S. Lewis. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? to wipe out the last sins of the damned at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering even every miraculous help. He has done so in Jesus. Are you asking God to forgive them? They do not want to be forgiven. Are you asking God to leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid. That is what He does. That, in the end, becomes our choice. Left alone, separated from God, and from all of the goodness that God is, or never forsaken, never left, never abandoned. God with us. Emmanuel. That's the story we're getting ready to tell once again. Kind Father, thank you. Thank you for love. Thank you for freedom, even though when we, we get freedom, we kind of we want more and we kind of want to put ourselves in charge and say, it's all about me. But thank you for giving us freedom. Thank you for giving us love and the possibility to pursue our freedom towards your love. Thank you that in the the face of the harshness, you remain graceful, full of grace, full of mercy, full of compassion. We so need that in this world because we find that things are really hard. We get distracted so frequently, we get focused on ourselves so easily. we are so caught up in trying to get ahead for ourselves that we can't measure that we are not getting ahead, we're getting in trouble. But we keep doing it because we're sure that we're right. I got this. I can handle it by myself. And as we practice saying that, as we practice living out the consequences of that, we are preparing for a future where you will indeed give us exactly what we asked for, to be left alone. But when you go, everything that is good goes with you. And we say, well, I didn't mean that. I still want all the good things. I just don't want you. And unfortunately, you can't separate yourself from your goodness. It is not possible to be separated from God and to have good things. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for offering us hope. Thank you for bringing us a champion, a savior who came with love in his heart, love in his life, showing a different way, an alternate way, one that is hard to get our head around sometimes, but one that's filled with hope. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts today. Speak to us in the words that we need to hear. And those words are different for each one of us, but each one needs to hear from you today. So speak, I pray. Give us the courage to make decisions that are wise and take next steps that are in pursuit of you. Thanks with your patience. Thanks for your patience and your grace. Thank you for your kindness and compassion. Thank you, Jesus, for letting us see who you really are. Amen.